0: What makes you want to travel? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, Chris Solomon tells us what he found on a summer expedition across Alaska's Antioch Jack Wilderness.
1: The berries got sweeter. The fish started approaching the shore, trying to find and sniff out their home rivers. And the bears started coming down to get ready to eat them. And you, you just felt like you were plugging into something more elemental that spoke to you as a human being. We'll also hear how you can learn some amazing things about life when you travel to observe different types of
0: birds around the world. Noah Stricker shares tales from his birding travels from Oregon to the outback all the way to the fearless penguins of Antarctica.
2: They'll follow you around just waiting for you to entertain them like you're some gigantic space alien that just dropped in. And
0: a business journalist in Tokyo describes what he's learning about life in Japan.
2: The baseball
3: is just incredibly fun here. I think it's more fun than baseball in Canada and the States.
0: It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A little bird can teach a lot about what it means to be human. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Noah Stricker tells us how his interest in ornithology has taken him all over the world to discover surprising intelligence among bird species. And a Canadian journalist based in Tokyo checks in with us on what he's noticed about Japanese society in the five years he's lived there reporting on economic news. Let's start in one of the wildest and most remote places in America. It's at the bottom of the list in terms of visitor numbers among the properties managed by the National Park Service. It's lucky to get a dozen visitors each year. No rangers, no trails, and no waiting in line. All the more reason Chris Solomon went out of his way to hike across the Antioch Jack Wilderness on the wet and rugged Alaska Peninsula last summer. He's with us right now to tell us about a place that looks like it has nothing to offer... But can be a life changing experience. Chris, welcome. Oh, great to be here. So, now is this actually a national park or what's the technicality there?
1: Yeah, so technically, Rick, Antiac Chak National Monument and Preserve is its name. And it, it is not a national park, but it is the least visited unit of the 401 properties in the national park system. So nobody goes there. Why do, they, why do they even bother thinking of it as part of the system? Yeah. yeah no, you you think that the least visited might be something like the Martin Van Buren National Birthplace. But right. It, uh, no. But no, uh, it's Annie Akchak. And uh, in 2012, Annie Akchak had 19 visitors. Last year, it might have ticked up to 100 or so. And you were there with uh, how many people in your party? Uh, Three of us. Three of us. Now, where is it, and how do you get there? Okay, so visualize this for me. If you look at the map of Alaska, Alaska has this big tail that kind of this frozen, 1,400-mile tail that wags westward at Kamchatka, and that's the Aleutian Islands. And the base of that tail is the Alaska Peninsula. And that's oh, okay. where Antioch Check is. Now, if I wanted to go there next week, where would I fly? Would I just rent a car and drive there, or how would I get there? So one of the reasons, uh, Rick, that this is not very popular is it's, it's hard to get to. From Seattle, where I live, it took us three flights to Anchorage, to King Salmon, to Port Hyden, which is just an airstrip built for World War II in the middle of nowhere on the Bering Sea. And then we backpacked with 65-pound packs for 22 miles to reach the centerpiece of the, the National Monument, which is a gorgeous volcanic crater. So ease of access is not one of its selling points. Is it worth the trouble? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this on the drive over here and how to summarize it. I've had the good fortune to travel all over the world as a travel writer. I was with a photographer who shoots pictures all over the world in beautiful places. We agreed we'd never seen a place as unique as this.
0: Okay, how can... You, you write in your article, it was just gorgeous about this, that it was mind-bendingly gorgeous. Is it the desolation that's part of it, or what makes it better
1: than just going to any national park? So maybe to convey what it's like, I need to tell you just a little bit about its geologic, and human history, which is more interesting than it sounds. Mm -hmm. About the time the Egyptians were ruling the world, a 7,000-foot volcano blew its top with a a force of 10,000 nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. It was one of the bigger eruptions we we know of. And then the volcano collapsed on itself and created a crater that could swallow Manhattan. Mm -hmm. That crater filled with water, so it looked like Crater Lake National Park. Then that lake blew out in this biblical flood And over the next couple thousand years, this lost world was sort of created inside that crater. And it just went kind of unnoticed, except for the native peoples for thousands of years, until 1930, when this man called the Glacier Priest arrived. And the Glacier Priest was Father Bernard Hubbard, and he was one of these Jesuit priest who was cut from the old cloth of these swashbuckling sort of Jesuits. And he he barnstormed all over the 49th state, having these wild adventures by bush plane and by uh, dog sled. His write-ups w- went in the Saturday Evening Post and the National Geographic. And in 1930, he wrote about visiting Antiochchak, and he described it as paradise found, this this lost world where orchids bloomed in the volcanically warmed soil. And... The rabbits were gigantic, and they came up and walked right up to his crew, which was a bunch of the Santa Clara football players, and and uh, and they felt bad killing them to eat them, but, but they did anyway. So did you read his writing in preparation for your trip? So I did. I read about his writings about the great moon crater of the earth, as he called it. And then what happened is he wanted to go back the next year, 1931, and Aniakchak blew up again, and he goes back. And talks about it no longer in these Miltonesque kind of paradise found terms but but in this Danteesque hellish terms and right. describes himself peering into this blackened inferno and then they go into the crater a couple months after it's blown up again and they nearly die of poisonous gases and they and they put their beans on a fumarole and their beans boil and they shove a thermometer in the ground and the thermometer explodes and it's just this hellish wild landscape that's the setting. Now we go back 80 years later just kind of see what it's like. And a lot of the soot has washed off from that 1931 explosion, but it has this kind of seer, flinty beauty. It's like this desolation sublime. Once you get into the crater, it's six miles in diameter. It's land of the lost meets nuclear holocaust. So uh,
0: Anyakchak is essentially this vast glacier and right. the environment around it. Well, so
1: right? The monument itself is inside a, a preserve and the monument centerpiece is this massive crater, and inside it are all these volcanic okay. pimples and freakish kind of yeah geologic freakish. Things. I was
0: thinking like otherworldly. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Chris Solomon, and Chris is he's a travel writer, writes for the New York Times and Scientific American, and he wrote an article for Outside Magazine on his adventure in America's least visited national park property, Aniakchak. Now, when you go up there, you mentioned there was more uh, wildlife, more bears than there are people. What
1: evidence of uh, humans did you see up there? You go to any other property, uh, national park. You see broad brimmed park rangers. You see Winnebagos. You see t- hiking trails. There's nothing up there. Mm-hmm. We saw one boot print, and I saw a little cannery cabin at the Pacific. And are there, that's are there all actually there. trails? No trails, no markings. Much of it is tundra, though, so you can just kind of walk where you will. Do you have maps, and do you have a place to sleep? Tell us just about the
0: the very nitty-gritty logistics. Where did you sleep? How did you get water? Yeah,
1: so we backpacked in from Port Hyden, and it was in, in a dense ground fog, and we used GPS, and we had maps to get in. Other people, when they go in on these trips, they'll fly by float plane and land right in the crater on Surprise Lake, which is this gorgeous... Lake, little lake that's a remnant lake of that big prehistoric lake that was in the caldera and then inside there's nothing more than knee high in the caldera so you could camp anywhere you wanted we camped right down by surprise lake which is this bright green blue that glacial lakes have from the suspended so sediment is it fertile or is it sort of burned off and, and hellish. It's sort of like a recovering hell. (laughs) There's dwarf fireweed, little pink Mm -hmm. plants growing. Right around the lake is electric green lichen growing. And did you just sleep out under the stars in the midst of this old volcano? We brought uh, very sturdy tents because winds can come in and just rip apart tents. They can come in off the Bering Sea. We, you know, (laughs) thank God, had gorgeous weather once we got into the caldera for about three days, four days.
0: So what was it like in in the middle of the night if you woke up at 2 o'clock? Uh, Silence,
1: I bet. Silence and more stars than you've ever seen before in the Milky Way above, and and not even a breath of wind. It was just a gift of a couple days.
0: Just that is an experience many people go through their whole lives and and never enjoy. Chris Solomon is telling us about the ultimate get-away-from-it-all camping trip right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Last year, Chris and some friends hiked the length of the Antioch National Monument. It's an exotic and rarely visited wilderness reserve, just across from Kodiak Island on the Alaska Peninsula. His article about their expedition appears in the May 2014 edition of Outside Magazine, and it includes photos they took of the amazing landscape. You can find a link to his article from this week's show details in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I love the way you write about desolation. I mean, you wrote, I'm grumpy about the prospects of our country for many reasons these days, but one thing that still gives me some hope is the ease with which we can still vanish here. How many forgotten corners remain to escape to and explore? If somebody wants to get away from it all, is this it? And and why does that give you hope?
1: I do find satisfaction. I've met fascinating people in crowded, busy places, but David Foster Wallace wrote about total noise that we live in, and I His concern about that. And I I find so much satisfaction and calmness in just getting back to quiet places and places where you can feel small and unimportant. And I think we need that in an age when we're just so go, go, go. This is certainly one of those places where you can find that recalibration that Mm -hmm. I think is so important. I don't think you have to go to the, in this case, almost the ends of the earth. There are places in the lower 48 that still have... Mm -hmm. You know, at least some semblance mm-hmm. of this. But you like to get a
0: the measure of a place for you, as far as how offbeat it is, is how few bars you have on your cell
1: phone. <laughs> that's become sort of a rule of thumb. <laughs> it, it really, it really has. I mean, the more you can unplug, the more maybe you get back in touch with some things about yourself and friends that are important. And uh, and that's more difficult these days. It is. There's a, there's a place that matters a great deal to me in the northwest, and I was pretty sad when I realized I had cell coverage throughout the uh, the Metau Valley. Yeah, <laughs> Chris, you wrote. We spend our days trying to be big. In the middle of nowhere,
0: though, we can surrender to smallness again and instead find where we fit in the landscape. Out there where there's nothing is where there's the most to learn. Talk about just the lessons you can get from this, where you say where there's nothing, there's the most to learn. And here in the United States, we have the most, but in some ways we are poverty-stricken, trying to be big. What's the value of being small?
1: You're know, Being out, for instance, for 10 days in Alaska... Things like cell phones didn't work. My fancy GPS watch died. We just had to be in tune with the countryside and the things that were happening. And we noticed the autumn changing. We The, the berries got sweeter. The fish started approaching the shore trying to find, sniff out their home rivers. And the bears started coming down to, to get ready to eat them. And you felt like you were plugging into something more elemental that spoke to you as a human being. That's
0: and, it, more elemental. I mean, ultimately our batteries are going to all be dead, and it's elemental.
1: (laughs) All that other junk that we worry about day after day, not so important, maybe.
0: That's a very important lesson of travel. Chris Solomon, thanks for going there, thanks for writing about it, and thanks for inspiring us to find a place where there are fewer bars on our
2: cell phones. Oh, my pleasure.
0: sky above our heads can be filled with remarkable things to discover. Up next, a young birding enthusiast shares some of the surprising things he's learned from observing different bird species all over the world and what birds can teach us about being human. And later in the hour, we'll check in with a Canadian journalist who writes for a European business magazine in Japan. He'll share his observations from Tokyo about how the slow economic recovery has been affecting life in Japan. Share your thoughts with us by email. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. Some people will travel to the ends of the earth just to see what nature can teach them up close. Noah Stricker's early interest in learning about birds has already flown him all over the world to study habitats from the Amazon and the Australian outback all the way to the Arctic and the Antarctic. In 2011, Noah hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, and that's the year he also published Among Penguins, about his time with a research team in Antarctica. Today, Noah divides his time between seasonal ornithology fieldwork and writing as an associate editor at Birding magazine. His latest book is an entertaining narrative about the surprising things different species of birds can reveal about being human. It's called The Thing with Feathers, and it includes chapters about dancing parrots, competitive hummingbirds, chickens, starlings, bowerbirds, owls, pigeons, and, of course, penguins. Noah, thanks for joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves.
2: Hey, Rick. Nice to be here.
0: You observe that birds are highly intelligent, uh, but their intelligence is different from human intelligence and therefore often misunderstood. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, yes, we often refer to being bird-brained. That's right. (laughs) And and I think attitudes on that are changing. You know, just in the past couple of decades, scientists have, have been studying birds in a different way than they were before. So... Traditionally, we've been so focused on defining ourselves as humans and separating us from the rest of the animal kingdom, and now lately it's switched, and we're more studying how we're similar to our feathered friends and and other animals out there.
0: A lot of people call me bird-brained, and and now I can say, thank you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's a compliment.
0: Oh, right. So, But how, how is their intelligence different from human intelligence? How are they misunderstood?
2: Well, I think it's hard to know what it's like to be a bird, and, and we can only get at it from various angles of of studying birds in labs and watching their behavior in the field. But I think that, that birds have the same basic needs that we do as people. They need food and water and shelter, and, and they want to raise a family, and they want to leave a legacy, and they want to live a good, prosperous life just like we do. And so in writing this book, I was surprised by many of the bird behaviors that we are studying in hardcore science now, how you can apply those back to us and even learn a few lessons about ourselves from the world of birds.
0: So what's an example?
2: Uh, well, I got interested in self-image in birds. <laughs> in other words, when a bird looks in a mirror, what does it see?
0: As you wrote about how magpies are particularly distinct in this uh, ability, they actually can recognize themselves in a mirror.
2: Exactly, and and we tend to take that for granted as humans. Because uh,
0: humans can do that, but that's that's unusual in the animal kingdom.
2: Uh-huh, and there's a test you can do called the mirror test, which is where you put a little speck of paint on an animal's forehead and put it in front of a mirror, and then watch what happens. And if it looks at the mirror and it starts scratching its forehead, it means it recognizes its reflection and it realizes it had something weird on its face. Oh, but if it attacks its reflection or tries to mate with its reflection or walks around the <laughs> well, backside of the mirror to look for this other animal, then then that's a fail. So,
0: now that's a dumb bird who sees yeah. himself in the mirror and tries to mate with it. <laughs> it happens. It happens. You have an interesting job. All right, what about memory? I mean, uh, you, you write about uh, how nutcracking birds have uh, memory that can rival or even surpass human memory.
2: Yeah, there's this bird called a Clark's nutcracker, which lives in the high mountain pine forests of western North America. They're related to crows and magpies, so they're in that family of birds called corvids, which is known to be pretty clever. Hmm. And they have one special claim to fame. Nutcrackers, every year in the late summer and fall, gather pine seeds and then cache them in the ground, burying them just like squirrels. And uh, the thing is, one individual nutcracker might, in one season, bury tens of thousands of pine seeds and then be able to remember where every single one of them is, even months later, even sometimes after a couple feet of snow have fallen on the ground. So they
0: could play like, you know, that card game Concentration?
2: They would kill us. They'd
0: be very good at Concentration. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about nutcrackers and birds trying to mate with themselves in the mirror and all sorts of interesting things with Noah Stricker. And Noah's written a book called The Thing with Feathers, sharing what he has observed From studying birds for a long time he's the associate editor of the American Birding magazine and Noah you've done a lot of travels as a well-traveled birder what are some of the most wildly rewarding places you've ever gone that we might as travelers consider going and uh, looking at
2: birds well first of all just being a birder one of the best things about it is that you get to travel so much because the thing about birds is Everywhere in the world you go, there will be birds there. Even if you go to the South Pole, birds have been recorded there. And so birding takes you to places that you would never go to otherwise. And I think that's really cool.
0: What's an example? Where have you gone because you were looking for birds and you realize, hey, birds are not. I'm glad I went here.
2: Well, other than the local landfill and sewage pond and uh, <laughs> airport runway, those are all good places to go bird watching. But it seems like birding is like this treasure hunt and it gives you a map and a quest and then it's up to you to go out and find the birds. So this year I spent a couple months in the high Arctic up on Svalbard, which is an isolated island archipelago about a thousand miles north of Norway. And that is a very cool place. In terms of bird diversity, it doesn't have a lot of species because as you go toward the poles, there are fewer and fewer birds. But the ones that are found there... Are really cool.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Noah Stricker about birds. Allie emailed us from Spokane in Washington, and and Allie writes "Uh, We loved seeing puffins on Haystack Rock at Cannon Beach in Oregon in the summertime. Do you have any recommendations for a good pair of binoculars that would help us see birds like this up close?
2: Okay, yeah. Well, first of all, Haystack Rock is a great place, probably the best place in Oregon to see tufted puffins, and so if you're there between about April and August, you can go out to the beach and use any old pair of binoculars or even a camera to zoom in on any of the green areas around the rock, and you'll see tufted puffins sitting next to their nesting burrows, and they're a beautiful bird.
0: Mm. Now, what about binoculars? Birders must just, that's the most essential tool, I would think.
2: Yes, so my advice on buying any sort of optics, including binoculars, is always just suck it up and spend as much as you possibly can because <laughs> mm-hmm. the the highest-end ones really are worth it if you're going to be using your pair of binoculars in the field for mm-hmm. you know the rest of your life, potentially. Mm-hmm. It's worth it to have a really good pair.
0: Now, how big of an issue is the size of it? Because as travelers, we like things that are portable. Do you compromise a lot to get something smaller?
2: I really like the pair of binoculars I use are Leicas, and they are a 8 by 32 pair. And they're fairly compact, so I can wear them around my neck Mm -hmm. all day long, as I do sometimes, and even forget them on and (laughs) take them to dinner. (laughs) (laughs) These birders take their (laughs) binoculars to dinner. Happens once in a while.
0: (laughs) All right. You know, um, in your book, you talk about all of these different um, aspects of bird intelligence. And you talk about fairy wrens that are actually charitable. They exhibit altruism. How, How can you observe a bird and figure out that they have a charitable heart?
2: What fairy wrens do is very interesting because it's rare in the bird world. They are cooperative nesters. So they nest on riparian areas, which are along streams, and a dominant pair will set up a territory, just like other birds do, and keep all the other fairy wrens off it so that they can have access to all the food that's there and build a nest and raise their chicks. The thing that's different with fairy wrens is they will allow sub-adult younger birds to squat on their territory and not chase them away as long as those younger birds essentially pay their rent by helping feed the chicks in the dominant pair's nest. So you end up getting sometimes seven or eight different fairy wrens all bringing food in and tending the same nest, which Ah, is quite unusual. (laughs) ah,
0: That just sounds amazing. And then the key is as a a birder to realize to be able to observe this and then actually be able to try to draw conclusions from that, that they are being charitable.
2: Well, that's the question is, are these younger birds who are helping feed the nest, is this, you know, an example of altruism or are they just coldly calculating uh, their chances of inheriting this territory when the older birds die and then they can move in and eventually have chicks of their own? So it's, You can kind of see this either way, that either altruism exists in the universe and you can do something purely out of the goodness of your heart, and this applies to people too, or do all of our actions, ultimately, are they all selfish?
0: Now, some of my favorite memories with birds are are sitting on the deck of my cabin on a cruise ship and tossing, lobbing little chunks of cracker or or bread up into the sky and these seagulls will... Uh, time it, and they'll swoop around and grab it like acrobats in midair. And it seems to me that the birds are are playing. But somebody told me birds don't play. Everything for them is just trying to get enough food to survive. Are they actually playing? Uh, Do they enjoy this, or are they just thinking food?
2: Personally, I think that birds totally play. I've watched penguins slide down hills and then get to the bottom and walk back up to the top and (laughs) do it again. I love it. Last year there was a viral video going around of a crow that was using a little piece of plastic to sled down a rooftop and then it would carry it back up to the top and do it again. Nice. I've seen birds in on
0: statues in Siena line up and slide down the snout of a sculpted uh, animal just to get to the end to drink out of the fountain that's spurting out of his mouth. And I just stared at it for the longest time and it really seems to me that they are just having fun.
2: Yeah, there's no reason, evolutionarily speaking, that something like playing should be limited to us humans.
0: Noah Stricker's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the author of The Thing with Feathers, The Surprising Lives of Birds and What They Reveal About Being Human. Noah's website is com. That's spelled S-T-R-Y-C-K-E-R. Noah, when you, when you think about uh, the activities of these birds and trying to better understand it, I was just on YouTube looking at this thing called murmuration with starlings, like billions of starlings, flying in close formation and zigzagging all around the sky in unison, like as if they were following the baton of some cosmic conductor. When you sit down and look at a giant flock of starlings in tight formation, swerving left, swooping right, what do you think? How do you explain that?
2: Well, for anyone who hasn't heard of a starling murmuration, you should go to YouTube right now and type in the word murmuration and see what you get. Murmuration is just the collective noun for a flock of starlings. And they make these huge flocks in the winter, usually around dusk, just before they go to their roost for the evening. And sometimes they can contain more than a million individual birds in one flock. And so from a distance, when they're swirling around, forming these intricate patterns that look sort of like smoke. It's hard to stand there and not just look at them and wonder, how do they all manage not to bump into each other and fall out of the sky? (laughs) How do they? Well, for many years, biologists have scratched their heads about how to study big flocks of birds like this. They act kind of like swarms of insects. They act kind of like big schools of fish. Uh, But they're different, and it's kind of like trying to study a tornado. Capturing that in the act and then somehow taking data off of it is very difficult. And it was only recently when a group of Italian physicists decided to look at starlings. These guys had virtually never looked at birds in their entire lives. They were mathematicians. And they approached it from a particle physics standpoint and tried to write equations that would describe starling flocks. And they (laughs) came up with some interesting results where they were comparing starling flocks to things like avalanches breaking loose from mountains and pieces of iron becoming spontaneously magnetized. So maybe it's all just strictly mathematical. And as far as we can tell, these flocks of starlings and probably fish have no leaders. They're very organic and they just behave almost according to certain rules and laws of the universe that govern these very intense patterns.
0: Fascinating. You know, uh, albatrosses are famous for having both long lives and also mating for life. How is it that albatrosses have such a a low divorce rate?
2: Yeah, we've studied albatross divorce rates. In other words, what percentage of pairs of albatrosses will split up before one of them dies? And in some cases, that can be as low as 0.1%. Which is pretty crazy, and it kind of makes you wonder about the 0.1%. Better than humans. <laughs> yeah, human divorce rates are around 40 to 45% around the world, and that puts us on about the same romantic level as a seabird called the Nazca booby.
0: <laughs> Spoken like a good birder, relating human divorce rates <laughs> to the animal kingdom. And speaking of falling in love, the, uh, the bower bird is famous for um, creating his own little bachelor pad, right? Tell me about how that can be appealing and effective to get a mate.
2: Bowerbirds are interesting. They live in Australia and New Guinea, and the male bowerbird will build a structure in the forest that looks like a little hut, usually, that he will then decorate with various colorful objects that he finds around the forest, like uh, brightly colored berries and leaves and uh, wings torn off of colorful beetles, and make these elaborate arrangements that are strictly visual that has no purpose at all other than to attract the attention of a passing female, and if she likes his display, she'll mate with him, and then go off and build her own nest by herself and raise the chicks, and and he will continue living in his bachelor pad, hoping to attract another female.
0: So bachelors can learn from the bower bird to decorate their place a little bit, and they may get a little better better luck.
2: The prettier it is, the more females it attracts.
0: Now, you wrote a book about penguins a few years ago called Among Penguins. Tell me about studying penguins, and and how are they unique? I I know that people are just wild about penguins, especially when they've seen them on one of these trips down to Antarctica. And I understand penguins only live in Antarctica, right?
2: Well, there are 18 kinds of penguins in the world, more or less, depending on how you define a species. And only two of them are totally restricted to Antarctica. So the other 16 you can find on the southern parts of South America and South Africa and New Zealand and Australia and a bunch of sub-Antarctic islands.
0: What's your favorite thing about penguins?
2: Penguins just have this incredible charisma and energy and personality and curiosity about them. If you ever get the chance to walk around a colony of Adelie penguins in Antarctica, it is an extraordinary experience because these birds have grown up without any fear of predators on land and so they have no fear of us they'll walk right up to you untie your shoelaces run circles around your feet (laughs) they'll come up and preen the side of your pants like you're some gorgeous mate they want to be with for the rest of their life they'll follow you around just waiting for you to entertain them like you're some gigantic space alien that just dropped in
0: so that's because they have no predators
2: Right, so all the other continents have land predators on them, and sure. and for something like a penguin, that might mean that they would get eaten. So what a beautiful
0: thing. If you can put up with the cold of Antarctica, you don't have any predators, and then you don't need to be afraid of strange men.
2: <laughs> Sounds like an ideal life, doesn't it? It just gets down to about 80 below in the winter. If you winter. can
0: handle the cold. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking birds with Noah Stricker, and Noah's new book is called The Thing with Feathers. Noah, how on earth did you get so enamored with with birding? How'd you get started in this?
2: I had a teacher in the fifth grade who put a bird feeder on our classroom window that suction cupped right up to the glass, and she'd stop class every time a new bird showed up and make us identify it. And the other six kids in my class thought this was the dumbest thing ever. And for me, for some reason, something sparked, and I got interested in identifying birds, and I went home, and started trying to figure out what was in my backyard. My mom and dad have about 20 acres of forest outside of town, so our yard is very birdy. And from there, it was just a addiction that has never, ever stopped.
0: And what are some of the places you've traveled with your uh, curiosity about birds?
2: So far, my interest in birds has taken me to six continents. Africa will be my last. The coolest places I have lived have been in the Amazon, in Costa Rica and Panama, in the Australian outback, and in Antarctica. And the best place is always the next one.
0: Noah Stricker, thanks so much for joining us, and best wishes with your birding, and, and uh, thanks for inspiring all of us to be a little more attentive to these surprisingly intelligent creatures that are flying all around us, all over this planet. My pleasure. You can add your comments to what you hear each week on Travel with Rick Steves and find web links to our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, we'll examine how Japanese society is reacting to its prolonged economic slowdown as we check in with a Canadian business journalist in Tokyo. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While well, in many ways Japan remains one of the top-ranked economies in the world, stresses on the country are starting to play out in ways that have caught the attention of our next guest. Joining us on the phone from his office in Tokyo is Mike DeJong. He's editor-in-chief of Eurobiz magazine. It's a monthly publication about European trade and investment in Japan. Mike, thanks for being with us.
3: Hey, it's a great pleasure, Rick. Nice to talk to you.
0: So how did an uh, editor from Toronto end up in Japan?
3: Well, my wife's Japanese, and we met in Toronto. She was studying English, and we had a son there, and then uh, she wanted to move back closer to her family. And I initially got a job as a broadcaster at NHK, which is their main television network. And then from there, I've worked my way into print, and um, now I'm editing uh, one of the larger English language business magazines in Tokyo.
0: Huh? Now, do you have uh, a lot of people visiting you from the States or from Canada?
3: Uh, personally, no. My parents are rather aged, so they're, it's yeah. kind of, they're unable to fly that far, a 12-hour flight from Toronto. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely you know, a, lot, a great place to come for a visit. I mean, you've oh, been here a couple of times, yeah. so you know it's, I love it's Japan.
0: Fabulous. and I, I, In fact, I enjoy eating in Japan, I think, at least as much as eating anywhere else in the world. For me, eating in Japan was one of the great travel experiences I've ever had.
3: That's right. And Michelin has ranked more uh, great uh, five-star or four-star restaurants in Tokyo than in Paris. Which is great for now Tokyo. That's I mean, it's a great culinary capital for sure.
0: Oh yeah. Now we have this image of a, sort of an idealized Japanese culture: delicate, understated, Zen gardens. You know, a single candle. All of this. When you're traveling around Japan today, are you able to find that?
3: Yeah, actually, today on the train coming in, I saw two women wearing kimonos, and you, and you see that a lot, especially you know certain times of the year, certain holidays mm-hmm. and such. But. Uh, it's a bit of a myth. It's a bit of a stereotype that we have as Westerners. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like thinking of America as being all cowboys and, and right. horses. But still, it is surprisingly, you know, surprisingly cool when you go to a sort of a historic town and you see on a Sunday, you see people wearing kimonos or carrying you know, the, right. the old umbrellas and stuff. So it, it, it is a, a, a real blast to the past.
0: But I would imagine there's a lot of pressure for the future, especially with rising economic powers on the Pacific Rim and so on. Tell us about the Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe.
3: Yeah, Mr. Abe was uh, elected in late 2012 and uh, trying to turn around an economy uh, that had suffered greatly from the Fukushima uh, disaster, the triple disaster in uh, March of 2011. We call it 311 here in Japan. And also from the Lehman shock a few years prior to that, where a lot of foreign investment left Japan for other places like Hong Kong the problem with japan rick is it's kind of a a fading power in terms of its economy compared to the rising powers in china and in india and some of these other places singapore um, so that's one problem that the Japanese government has had to deal with, and then they had obviously the tragedy, which we're still three years later trying to rebuild from. Many people still homeless from the Fukushima area, and that's uh, obviously requiring a lot of government investment. When Prime Minister Abe took over, he brought in a, a program which was dubbed Abenomics, and that was uh, a lot of government spending. Uh, you know, lowering the yen to try to spark a foreign investment and you know make Japanese goods more attractive worldwide.
0: He was dealing with their crisis kind of like our government was dealing with our crisis then, stimulus, spending.
3: That's right. And then on top of it, you had the nuclear disaster, the, the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster that yeah. was, you know, dropped right on top of it. So last year, it seemed the economy was picking up until the end of the year when growth kind of slowed at the end of last year. This year, it's, uh, it's been quite slow. And uh, people are looking to Mr. Abbey now, you know, do you have any more... Rabbits you can pull out of a hat to sort of get things going, but uh, there seems to be a bit of a a malaise in the population, wondering what's going to happen next, and um, yeah, we'll have to see.
0: Now, you mentioned Japan's economy has ebbed or something like that. Is that something to do with a more geriatric society and a a thinning population, or... To what do we attribute the fact that Japan's not the dynamo it used to be?
3: Well, that's exactly right, Rick. I mean, coming out of the bubble era when Japan was on top of the world almost economically, the number two economic power in the the world, the bubble burst, and into the 90s they went through a great period of recession and just haven't been able to to shake that off. And then again, you know, the earthquake and tsunami hit. But you mentioned some of the, the demographic problems that Japan faces. They face really a demographic double whammy. They have the oldest population in the developed world, and 25% of the population is over the age of 65, wow. so they're retired, and then you also, at the other end of the spectrum, you have one of the lowest birth rates in the developed world. The Japanese basically aren't having babies the way they used to, so the population is you know, predicted to really shrink in the coming years, which is, you know, combined with the aging of the population at the other end, it's going to put a, a lot of pressure on the younger Generation, You know, my son, when he, he reaches tax-paying age, I mean, he's probably going to be facing, you know, a horrendous tax bill just to fund all the programs that, that need to be funded here.
0: Well, to support all the retired people who are no longer contributing to the society.
3: That's right, and who are depending on, yeah. on government pensions. Well, now, and Europe yeah. has had
0: the same problem because, I, I mean, my take is when you have a very successful society, it becomes better educated and wealthier, and when that happens, people have less kids and they live longer. And uh, that just means the entitlements are going to be hard to sustain. Are Japanese accustomed to having entitlements as lavish as in Europe, or do they rely more on their families?
3: I think they rely more on their families than they do. I mean, they have a very good pension system and a health care system, which covers 70%. So, you know, they do depend on that. But I think in terms of entitlements, they depend more on on their companies to support them it's it's not so much mm. the government i mean when we all know japanese are known to be the great workers and Very loyal. the work ethic is yes exactly so when they become part of a company it's almost like part of the family so if you work for sony or toyota or one of these other big manufacturing companies you know they look to their company to support them and in turn hmm. they they're super loyal they, they yeah. basically give everything they have to working for that company
0: this is travel with rick steves we're talking with mike to john and mike is the editor-in-chief of eurobiz magazine in japan we're talking about trends in japan and mike when you when you think about people relying on their companies I think a trend in the United States has been more aggressive expectations from shareholders at the expense of workers and pensions, and you can even find companies acing uh, loyal workers out of their pensions in order to have better returns and have a healthier bottom line. Is that a trend or a concern among workers who have been loyal to their corporate support system in Japan?
3: Well. It- not not so much. I mean, the shareholder issue is not really that much of a concern here. It's more that if you come right out of university and you get a job with one of these large companies, the expectation has been that that company will take care of you if you are loyal to them. And shareholders, you know, don't really come into the picture. But the problem is in the last decade or so, that lifetime employment guarantee has sort of gone by the wayside. Hmm. And we've seen a lot of Japanese workers being laid off for the first time ever. And, and, you know, the company is going through layoffs for the first time in history, or in post-war history anyway. Well, so corporations and, and, are
0: no longer as loyal to the people who have dedicated their lives working for them as they have in the past. Is that what you're saying?
3: That's exactly right. Wow. And obviously the the economy has caused that with many of the companies struggling.
0: Now, when you have economic hard times, does that drive the country politically to the left or to the right? Or do you, do you see greater tension? Or how has that affected the country's general sort of political demeanor?
3: Well, that's a great question, Rick. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing sort of hard times prompting a bit of a rise in extremism i mean we saw it in europe uh, prior to world war 2 we saw it in japan prior to world war 2 we're seeing sort of a rise in nationalistic sentiment here in japan over the last couple of years i mean prime minister abe himself is a very strong nationalist in fact he once wrote a book about the, the beauty of japan and hmm. you know basically talking about uh, politically in terms of you know the purity of the japanese and We've seen some disturbing incidents recently at a Japanese uh, pro soccer game. Some fans put up a sign, Japanese only, in one section of the seats, and that prompted a big backlash from the league and a suspension of the team, actually. Well, this is a big
0: departure for Japanese because I remember, you know, in the wake of all the difficult times they had after World War II, they weren't very inclined to fly their flag, as Germany was disinclined to fly its flag also. In fact, I remember in my travels in Japan, granted a long time ago, it was frustrating for me because people wouldn't even talk politics. They were, it just seemed like they wanted to talk about cartoons and stuff, and I just wanted to talk politics. But now people are, are getting more uh, militaristic and more nationalistic?
3: Yes, and part of the problem is the education system here doesn't really teach history in the way that it should be taught. They really whitewash a lot of the wartime atrocities. And in fact, the kids in school, they don't really learn about them. They just gloss over them. And what they do learn about are things like hiroshima and nagasaki which obviously they should but that results, in my opinion, that results in a population that sees itself more as victims as of victims. World War II rather than perpetrators. And, you know, Rick, recently I read that Japanese are very, very into the Diary of Anne Frank. It's very popular here in Japan. And one of the reasons is, it said, is because the Japanese empathize or sympathize with Anne Frank as a victim of World War II. They see themselves more as victims rather than as perpetrators. And that's dangerous. Hmm. I mean, obviously, if you don't know your history, you're, yeah. you're doomed to repeat it. And, and then drawing, that, that,
0: drawing back to that German yeah. uh, parallel, in Germany, on the other hand, I find their documentation centers and they're very honest and candid about their troubled and dark past in order not to let it happen again.
3: That's right, and it's, uh, you know, in my opinion, that's very smart, and that's the opposite of what the Japanese do. You go down to Okinawa, and they'll have signs there talking about how here's where the Americans invaded and here's where the Americans huh. did this, the Americans did that, and it's nothing about the Japanese imperial past in okinawa which was much worse and uh, and it's troubling with my son being in japanese school he's not getting a true picture of world events are people that, that quite,
0: would you say, Mike, that people are quite complacent and accept what's taught to them, or is there a, a hunger to reach out and, and get a more candid uh, look at 20th century history?
3: No, that's that's true as well. People are very complacent, and it's it's sort of a cultural thing stemming from the, the Confucian past, the Chinese influence, that people in school tend to just listen to the sensei, listen yeah. to the teacher. Yeah. And Dai sensei. Follow authority. Dai yeah, sensei. Exactly.
0: Honorable teacher. Mike, just right. to finish up, how would you characterize the quality of life for the working-class person in Japan now? What is their working situation, their vacation situation, the situation for women?
3: Oh, that's a big question. I, I would say the quality of life here is, uh, well, it's not as good as what uh, certainly Europeans can expect, but even North Americans, I mean, I think they, they really, really work themselves to death. There's even a, you know a workplace death syndrome here where people have died from overwork, they call it. It is sad, but at the same time, I mean, the Japanese do have this great family ethic as well, and mm-hmm. and they really do love their, you know, their cherry blossom festivals, and they love their historical festivals, so they do take time to enjoy themselves, but it's not uncommon here for a salaryman, as they're called, to work 50, 60-hour weeks mm-hmm. and virtually never see his family until holiday time. So I think that's one of the reasons that they've said that the Japanese don't have enough children is, you know, the husband and wife just doesn't get enough time together. So that's something that Prime Minister and the governments will have to address in the future.
0: I don't know if you've seen the the TV series Mad Men, but I was just appalled at the treatment of women in the American workforce back in the 60s. And my sense from earlier travels in Japan is Japanese women a lot of times are treated like American women were a long time ago in America. What's the, the, your sense about women's place in the workforce?
3: Well, that's exactly right as well. I mean, it's a very, very tough situation here for women. There are actually more girls who go to university in Japan than boys. But when they get into the workplace, they work through their 20s, they're pretty much expected to have children and then retire. Mm-hmm. And they don't hold their jobs for them. There's no such thing mm-hmm. as your job is held mm-hmm. for maternity and you can come back and continue on the ladder into upper management. Japan has a very small percentage of upper managers who are women. They have the, one of the lowest female populations in parliament, female representations in parliament. So it, it is a problem. But that's also something that Prime Minister Abe has surprisingly said that he would address. That he sees that that is that is an area of growth. That perhaps if more women are welcomed into management roles. They can take some of the pressure off the men right. and also have more spending power and create more more growth in the economy.
0: It sounds like this Abe, this Prime Minister Abe, is somebody to keep an eye on. Mike DeJong, Editor-in-Chief of Eurobiz Magazine in Japan, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a little bit of a, of a downer, but let's finish by reminding people Japan's a beautiful place to visit in your travels. And in spite of all their hard work and their uh, economic challenges... Just uh, let's cap this uh, discussion with something colorful and, and fun that you can do in Japan that reflects a culture that is resilient and able to rebound from things like uh, difficulties back in, in uh, World War II and the more recent triple disaster at Fukushima.
3: Well, aside from the great uh, cherry blossom festivals and visiting you know, the greatest restaurants probably in the world, my favorite thing about Japan is the baseball the baseball is just incredibly fun here. It's, I think it's more fun than baseball in Canada and the States. And the fans really get into it, and the players are quite good, and it's a great experience for kids. So, you know, I would say to my American and Canadian friends to come here and go to a baseball game in Japan because it's, it's like no other experience, uh, sporting experience that you've ever had.
0: Mike DeJong, uh, if my uh, memory serves me correctly, domo arigato would be uh, thank you very much. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's it. And do is your welcome. Ah,
0: Makes me want to go back to Japan. Thanks again, Mike, and uh, best wishes okay. with your work at uh, Eurobiz Magazine.
3: Thanks very much, Rick.
0: Mike DeJong's been with us on the line from his office at Eurobiz Magazine in Tokyo. Their website is eurobiz.jp. That's E U R O B I Z.jp. When Jake Wargo went to Tokyo with his microphone, he decided he needed to get out of the busy city and find a more traditional way to slow down and really enjoy being in Japan.
4: Tokyo is a busy place. If you wanted a break, you could drive to Kyoto in about six hours, or hop on a bullet train in three hours, or if you have the time, you could walk between the imperial capitals, like they used to back in Japan's feudal period on an ancient route slowly being rediscovered called the Nakasendo.
5: Nakasendo means uh, the middle route through the mountains. Uh, The three characters are middle, mountain, and road. This is Jamie. Yes, uh, my name is Jamie Dwyer. I am a tour leader for Walk Japan.
4: There's a trend happening in tourism these days towards putting the journey back into travel. It's no longer just about the destination, but how you get there. And sometimes, the slower you go, the closer you can get to the past. The Nakasendo was the superhighway of Japan's feudal era. All along the route, there are post towns where travelers would stop for the night. Today, the post towns are helping to revive the past.
5: Magome and Sumago and Narai, these three towns, are designated as special preservation areas. And uh, the residents there have decided not to have any power lines. Uh, vending machines, and they try to keep cars off of the streets at certain times to retain this kind of old traditional feel of the Nakasendo.
4: We pass a memorial to a famous battle in 1561 when Japan was fiercely divided. A diorama explains a historic battle fought down in the valley we just walked through. Many of the towns on the Nagasendo were from a feudal past that Japan actually wanted to forget. They tore down the exclusive inns in the center of post towns where the opulent lords used to stay and built places for the people instead, often schools. But in the march of time,
5: nothing stays the same. What's interesting about the honjin, or the school here, it's a haiko, a school that has gone out of business because there's no children in the countryside. The young people are basically disappearing, so once the last generation living here dies off, there's nobody left, you have a lot of open houses, and um, how do you say, the countryside is slowly dying off.
4: It took caravans two weeks to travel the full 550 kilometers between Tokyo and Kyoto, what we did in ten days walking and train hopping, a distance a plane can fly in about 30 minutes
5: it's really the opposite of what tokyo is i think people they're in need of something like this because in the city you know you you may not even speak to the person who lives right next to you especially now so with the younger generation you have a lot of people who um, are kind of trying to go back to the country style living a subsistence type of living And, and this is a good example of you know how rather than starting from zero you can see there's traditions here that allow you to live kind of a subsistence lifestyle that was present in the Edo period.
4: The faster you go, the less you see. Maybe it's time to slow down and take a stroll through the past before it's completely forgotten. From somewhere along the Nagasendo in Japan, I'm Jake Warka for Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Jake Warga's travels include leading photography tours in Morocco. Samples of his photos and audio work are on his website. That's jakewarga.com, spelled W-A-R-G-A.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Woolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at KLCC Radio in Eugene, Oregon for their help this week. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. You'll find links to our guests, and you can listen to any week's show again on demand. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
3: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the
2: skills of smart travel and his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.